Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. My guest today is someone you might recognize. He's been a commentator on CNBC's Capital Connection, hosted by our friend Hadley Gamble, but he's also a regular guest on BBC World and Bloomberg. He's a professor of practice at the University of Cairo and an expert in corporate governance and ESG investing. He's here today to give us a flyover look at what's happening across the Middle East from an economic perspective. From Lebanon, where the banking system has pretty much completely collapsed, to the UAE and Bahrain, where the Abraham Accords have made it possible for Israel and Arab countries to do business. Please welcome to the show, Angus Blair. Hi, Angus. Hello to you. So... There's a lot happening in the Middle East right now. Um, new alliances are being made. Lebanon is on the very brink of collapse. Israel is doing business with GCC countries. How do you think this new $400 billion, 25-year deal between Iran and China that was announced at the end of March might potentially affect what's happening in the region? Well, first of all, you're quite right. This is a very noisy region in terms of the world stage, the geopolitics. I wouldn't say it's unlike any other, but it's always in the background making a noise, one form or another. And it's interesting in the case of Iran, we now have a new US administration that will, I think, to a degree, re-engage with the Iranian leadership. The Chinese, however, also have plans They have totally transformed in the last 20 years, they being the Chinese. And it's really interesting looking at, as I now live in Egypt, looking at what the Chinese government has been doing, the Communist Party has been doing across Africa and the relations that it has. It has a long-term picture, long-term strategy. It can engage and pressurize its private sector or state-owned enterprises to engage with countries that it wants to have a better political relationship with. And in the case of Iran, it's even more interesting because they have basically put the American concerns to the side and said, well, we're going to engage with Iran. We're going to buy its oil. And it doesn't matter if there are sanctions. And frankly, there's not much the Americans can do about that. The oil is going to leave and go to a market that's still been growing, albeit China has enormous ambitions to move to renewable energies. But what China has done is basically say to America, we really don't care. What it means, though, I think, for the Iranians is quite different. They're going to have some foreign currency where they didn't have it before, maybe on a discounted price, but they're going to have that. It's going to be another positive element for their fiscal situation, which they need, because the sanctions have really affected the economy significantly, pushed up inflation, damaged uh, a disposable income that people have and and job creation, as well as a very minimal foreign direct investment. So it's a very interesting engagement with the region. It is. But what's interesting is that China is actually Saudi Arabia's largest trade partner at the moment and Israel's second largest. And um, both of those countries view Iran as a threat. So could this partnership in some way hinder Saudi Arabia's economic progress, considering how this power shift um, may affect oil? I don't think so directly. Although that said, I think that 
Saudi Arabia will continue to expend a significant part of its budget on the military and on defense. I think that's not a surprise. And I think that's what we're going to see is continued expenditure on, on defense. Perhaps taking a more aggressive or assertive posture than was the case historically. So I think that's one issue. I don't see, I have to say, I'm not, in looking at all the regional risk, I'm really not a believer that any of the two sides here, Iran and its allies, or Saudi and its allies, would want to conflate any problems. But they're there. And it's interesting now with the narrative, what are called the Abraham Accords between Israel and some of the Arab world, that what it's done, it's changed the narrative. They're on the same side now in terms of Iran. And of course, the Israeli leadership could be viewed as being much more assertive than the, than the GCC. But the, I think it's quite interesting. I think that if you look at what they're doing, it's still early days, but the relationship between Jerusalem and Abu Dhabi has become remarkably close very quickly. It's quieter and cooler, perhaps not quite cold, but it's cooler with, with Riyadh. There must be back channels. But it's interesting how they're on the same side. And I think there must be discussions behind the scenes about what to do about Iran. I want to talk specifically about Iran when it comes to Lebanon, though, because Hezbollah, as we all know, is at the center of the negotiations to form a new government there. Critics want Hezbollah out of the government and out of the picture. But if if Iran's weight and influence grows in the region and that strengthens Hezbollah, can you envision from where you're sitting Lebanon emerging from this crisis that it's in in a, in a really transformative way? You know, I would like to say yes, but I can't say that because I, I visit, I've been visiting Lebanon about once a quarter for about 20 years. And I have to say, I'm, I'm concerned that what one would expect from, say, a city of London perspective, which is my background in finance, that we would expect governments to take efficient decisions that in the case of Lebanon, don't exist for the most part. So I'd be concerned that the outlook is heavily, will remain heavily political. The weight which Hezbollah and its allies bring can perhaps skew the debate economically and politically away from where it needs to be. I mean, right now, if you look at the economy, and I have to say, I did warn some friends a few years ago about where the economy was heading on one of my visits. And I have to say, I'm concerned because there's a, such a deterioration in the last two years, and particularly over the last year, that you won't reach a stage in Lebanon where it's going to be very difficult and much more costly to rebuild assets because there'll be so little investment. You need to upgrade the health system, the educational system, physical infrastructure, transport, and of course, electricity and water which I have to say, Lebanon is now way behind where it ought to be in the provision of reliable uh, provision of water, portable water and electricity. I don't understand. I don't think anyone can really understand the main reasonings behind it, or we can guess. But it's the fact that each party plays off against the other or has to be engaged with each other as well. They're, they are both on different sides and the same side concurrently. So I'm concerned about the trajectory of Lebanon very much. And I have to say, you can see that and sense the frustration in the language from the World Bank and the IMF. I've not seen language like it. And I know both institutions very well. 
I haven't seen them use such blunt language before, and certainly not in this region. So I'm concerned about that trajectory. And I think that if we have to rely on another area of collapse, whether it's the health system or whatever, to be able to resolve a change, it shouldn't get to that for that to happen. But unfortunately, that's where we are. I'd love to see more realism come through, but I don't think it's going to happen. Hmm. You say realism, um, but you're very experienced in banking and specifically in corporate governance. I know you give lectures to students specifically on that topic. And I imagine that you could apply similar principles of best practices in government as you would in a corporation, for example. So do you have any ideas on what you think exactly needs to happen in Lebanon for all those things to happen, for this reconstruction, this rehabilitation of infrastructure, and um, essentially reconstruction of a functional government? Well, whenever there's a problem within a company or in the wider sense of country, that if the people who cre help create the problem are those involved in trying to get out of it, I'm afraid it won't really be as efficient. The responses won't be as efficient as someone else or other people coming in with new ideas unrelated to the vested interests to come in to make a change. In the corporate world, it's easier to do because there are shareholders and others who would ensure that the right thing was being done. In this case, in what could be or should be a democracy, that isn't being seen because everyone is so vested and tied to a particular part of a dogma. But all are equally guilty, I think, in allowing the situation to deteriorate. So you need to bring in, I think, find a way to bring in new faces, new ideas. But the system is so entrenched, so inward-looking, feels so threatened by change, that it's going to, I see it difficult to find a way through this impasse. It is an impasse. And I think that while you've seen on a regional basis, the total transformation of the narrative of engagement with Israel, uh, you need to have a new way of thinking to break through and make a change. Now, if the events of two years ago didn't make enough of a change, if the events of the port explosion didn't make a change, if the pressure from electricity, lack of electricity and the health system under crisis, the educational system under crisis in terms of funding and the collapse of the currency, then frankly, I'm not quite sure what the trigger would be to effect positive change, except for someone very senior to say, this isn't going to work. We really need to bring in new people. And then they could suggest, we're going to have to stand back to allow a government of national unity. The problem is so many people have so many things to hide that they don't want it to be seen. So they'd rather see or will willing to see a further collapse in the economy and society before a change is made. And then it's too late. It's hard to believe and hard to watch. Um, speaking of democracy, though, the Abraham Accords that were signed last September, that was a pretty big deal. That agreement between Israel, the U.S. and the UAE that was brokered has basically swung the doors wide open between those countries. And That's even though many Arabs take issue with it because of Israel's abuses when it comes to Palestine um, and human rights and so on. Um, so do you think, how do you think this will change the countries in terms of the kinds of industries that will develop as the countries cross-pollinate? Well, 
first of all, if you look at the Emirates in Israel, a very significant portion of attention, of government attention, is on technical, technological development. It's a very natural partner in terms of the Emirates, Abu Dhabi and Jerusalem in that sense. The fact that different funds have come together to look to cross-invest, the fact that it's easy to get visas to travel. It's transformative. Again, this issue, the issue of politics and the Palestinian issue is always in the background, but that doesn't mean it's never not going to be discussed. I'm certain it will be discussed on a regular basis as part of the overall accords. But what these accords seem to be is to say, look, this problem is with us, and it's going to be with us for a long time, but it shouldn't hold us back now from creating real change on the ground and uh, discussions between people, setting up new businesses together, looking at issues related to which everyone has of water and access to water, climate change in general, which this region is already facing significantly, which you can see in higher summer temperatures, which will damage agricultural production all over from Morocco to Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and Turkey down to Oman, and as well as Iran. This region is way behind where it needs to be in terms of those discussions about cross-border discussions on water access, climate change issues, perhaps in uh, desalination, in utilizing clever agriculture. All of these issues, I think, can be sped up by these Abraham Accords. I remember going to the first regional World Economic Forum Summit, and there was tremendous hope for change. The Israeli side was there. The Palestinians were there. They were having real discussions at the time with those individuals. I was privy to one dinner with some of them when I was there, even because I was doing finance in London and some of the countries were coming to us for, for help and ideas, especially around privatization. And if you see then what happened subsequently, you needed to have a real change. So I'm, if you look at the setting up of uh, venture capital for angel investing, venture capital firms, private equity firms, that's going to happen. Water, uh, specialized agriculture, utilizing mineral water, all of that's already begun to happen. And I really hope that Lebanon doesn't miss out. I hope that other countries don't miss out on this change because in the end, it's beneficial for everyone. And then in the background, work on solutions to help resolve the Palestinian issue. But that would also call for change within the Palestinian system, which is historically, if one looks at it, rather corrupt. And I think that they also have to grow up. And perhaps in these forthcoming elections, that could be part of it. But they have to also change in this new world. This is not the 1980s. The Palestinian political structure, I think, is stuck in the past. It has to change. It has to transform. You have to have many, many younger people who've been around the world to begin to effect change, I think, to benefit uh, the, the people within the West Bank and Gaza. But, well, a lot of the changes that you cited are very positive changes. Um, it's always nice to see countries working together towards, you know, doing good things for their populations. But considering that many Arabs in the GCC and in that part of the world have a really deep-rooted um, hatred for Israel, in many cases because their own families were kicked out of their lands by Israel, um, 
which is the reason they're living in the GCC now in the first place. Do you foresee that this kind of economic adventure they're on could eventually lead to some form of discontent in the population or even anger or violence amongst the population? I think I'm not a psychologist, but if one's position in life is to hate, then I think you need therapy. Uh, if you look at Europe, my grandparents, and in fact, my parents grew up in the war, Second World War. And there was an enormous dislocation around Europe in terms of millions of refugees. Million, first of all, 50 million dead. Over 1,000 cities destroyed, including six and even today's the Holocaust Day, remembering Six, over six million Jewish people who died, in addition to others, and of course, soldiers and civilians all over the continent of Europe. If you look at that, 20 years later, there was cross-border uh, uh, engagement in, of course, business and the arts. You can even look at the Beatles going to, within 15, just over 15 years after the end of the Second World War, going to help develop their sound in Germany when they visited Germany, in their case, Western Germany in the early 60s, there was real engagement despite the fact that people hated each other. People were able to surmount it. So I think that in the driving force, and I, I have to tell you, I have a personal family engagement in this. My grandfather died as part of that struggle, which I don't talk about very much publicly, if at all, but it's there. So um, some people can say he shouldn't have been there. He was actually with the British Army. But um, the fact that if you look at it, if their driving force is only hatred, then you cannot be constructive. Now, there are issues on both sides. You have to also remember that many Jewish people have left many assets and homes across the Middle East and North Africa themselves. And in many instances, when I've raised money, for, especially for um, uh, Arab companies and go around, for example, in New York, it's amazing the number of people I've met whose families used to live, say, in Tunis, or particularly those who were in Egypt, have enormously fond memories of life in their families in these countries. It's not going to be easy. I can understand why people will feel emotional about it, and I would never want to blame them. But what I would say from a personal basis is, I think that if you, if you look and change the, the position you have on an issue, then perhaps you can have it in the background and try to deal with it but try not to be driven by a negative force. Try to look for positive forces to drive your perception. I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, that's always more constructive. But I think that the reason that the anger for Arabs in that part of the world is so hard to let go of is because it's an ongoing issue. There's no resolution. And, you know, every day there are more accounts of, of lands being taken. Um, I don't want to get too political, but... You know, I see what you're saying, and I, I think that there does have to be a point where you move forward and in a positive way. However, that would imply that the things that are happening that are angering people for good reason would have to stop. Um, but I, I would say I can, that I can, I can, I can, I can understand that. I understand that. I understand it. I understand the injustice. I see the injustice. I see the lack of equity and the lack of engagement. I don't have answers. This is not my background. But I think that um, if one looks, at, as I've done, by attrition over time, I can see where there is injustice, of course. I can see why there'd be anger. But I think that the continuation, of course, and the way it's presented 
in the media, of course, it affects people and the perception of what's happening and their knowledge. And their, I understand it. But I, I, I don't have an answer to that, except the Palestinian leadership, I have to say, some of whom I've met in the past, I have to say, really need to change. And they really need to become more sophisticated, more clever, less corrupt, uh, have younger members to be able to help transform their economies. It's been, I think, an incredibly ineffectual governance themselves, I think, um, deeply corrupt, which I think has done an enormous disservice to the Palestinian population at large. But there really isn't not, there's not much more I can add to that except that new thinking on both sides would have to happen and the injustices would have to stop. Yeah, to be fair, they've had a lot of sticks in their wheels. It hasn't been easy for them to function in a normal fashion with, you know, the world around them. Um, and, and Absolutely. I agree. Mm, I agree. And I think that at some point, people there, uh, like in Lebanon, have to make the choice of whether they want to hold on to these political ideologies or whether they want to move forward in with more of an economic perspective, which is why your input, I think, is valuable in this conversation, because at the end of the day, people have to think about their livelihoods, the livelihoods of their children and how their country will survive in the future. So... It's it's a complicated, for sure, a complicated situation. Um, but I would say, and I'd like to get your input on this, that in the GCC, it seems like um, there's some kind of uh, smooth or whitewashing happening in the sense that the governments there seem to be opening up uh, socially, um, changing the, the laws For example, you know, allowing women to drive in Saudi Arabia and allowing uh, couples to live unmarried in the UAE. So putting these laws in place that are making the younger population feel comfortable and feel like progress is being made. And so when a country becomes livable and prosperous, it's much easier for them to close their eyes on all these political things. I don't know if you think that there's any truth to that or if those are completely unrelated. Well, I'm, I'm British, and just because our lives are more comfortable than many other countries in the world and areas of the world doesn't mean we do not see what's happening. doesn't mean that we don't feel that there's injustice. And in fact, I think the space of the freedom that we have makes it easier for us to take a stand, us as individuals or groups or associations, and increasingly, I think, in governments, whether it's the EU as a whole or the British government, which has unfortunately left the European Union, from my perspective. So I think that, I don't think it's a SOP and I don't think it's a whitewash. I think it's a necessary change because it was unfair to women, particularly many of those issues. And I and women should be equal in my view in society in every way possible, including work. So I, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's, it's a necessary part of change of society because the world has changed so much. And the values of countries, which have been set by individuals, are very much of the past of societies that were much smaller, much more simple. And now everyone is so much more interconnected and people travel. So the societies have had to change. And we've seen that enormously sped up change in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I used to work, uh, work there, live there for a few years in the past. And it's, the country's totally transformed from when I was there 15 years ago. For sure. Um, how optimistic are you overall about the region? I try not to be optimistic or pessimistic. I'm my, by nature, I'm an investment banker and economist. 
and I have to, I'm practical. I, we see problems and we try to come up with solutions. That's what my background is. That's what my work is. That's what my life is. If you see a problem, you find ways to try to make it better. Or you, and if you can't, you could normally gauge quite quickly. If there's something that you can't do, you walk away. You don't expend energy. It's quite an efficient system. I know finance takes a lot of knocks, but you have to remember it's a whole mass of individuals and groups and associations and companies. It isn't just driven by uh, 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 now only the bottom line. There are very many other issues, especially corporate governance, climate change, sustainability. All of these issues have helped to transform finance in the last 25 years. And I think that when we see problems, we try to um, either work to remove the problem or diminish the risk of something going wrong. I think there are many ways in which we can teach governments about how to mitigate risk and deal with it. And also, we engage, we engage better. We're, I think we're much better, we being in finance, much better at engaging those with different views than governments are on the whole. Angus Blair, thank you so much for joining us today and keep up the great work. Thank you very much. It's been great to speak with you. That's it. I hope you enjoyed the show today and that it helped you understand a bit better what's happening in this part of the world. I know I learned a lot. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your way out. See you soon.